Will we see you at CBP Connects presented by Arrive POS in St. Louis, Missouri, June 20th to 22nd, 2022? While we strive for a day when our in-person workshops will be 100% free, we are extremely proud to offer one of the industry's most affordable events. Join us for three days of networking and education, 10 interactive workshops, three nightly receptions with drinks on CBP, and one not to miss opportunity for you to build relationships with your fellow craft beer professionals. Only $149. Huge thanks to Arrive POS, River Drive Cooperage, Strike Visuals, and White Labs for believing in CBP. See you there and learn more at cbpconnects.com. Cheers. Hello, everybody. Our Crappy Professional Spring Virtual Conference kicks off next Monday. That's April 4th. For Join us for three days of education, April 4th, 5th, and 6th, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern each day. It's 40-plus sessions. Just go around everything from brewing to business. There's definitely something for you to learn from. It's available forever as well. But today, I'm excited to be joined by a wonderful cast of characters, and I know we're going to have a fantastic conversation. My favorite part about these conference preview panels is bringing four to five people together who may or may not know each other and just to see where the conversation goes. And Laura, you and I have got to know each other quite well over the past few years, going back to pre-pandemic to wherever we are right now. But for everyone who hasn't had the opportunity to meet you face-to-face or see you in person, who are you, Laura, and what do you do in the craft beer industry? I muted myself because I was hearing all of the feedback. I think we're good now. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm hearing myself again. You're actually coming through totally clear. You're just benefiting okay. from being able to hear your own incredible insight as well. Awesome. Okay. I don't know the why part of that. But I'm Laura Lodge, and um, I'm excited to be here this morning. Thank you, Andrew. Always cool to have new different random panels of people and perspectives um i have a background in distribution that's where i started in the craft beer world and i am most recently working with start a brewery which is a cool adventure of bringing together people from across the industry to help startups and uh, expanding breweries collaborating together so um, emily is one of our contributors andrew is one of our contributors so excited and appreciating your support um, I also have a background in events. The Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines Festival is my um, responsibility slash headache slash awesomeness, depending on what day we're standing on. And I, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to bring that back in 2023. I know I can't wait to attend. But Laura, what are you going to be talking about this upcoming conference? Can you still hear me? We can. Okay, because I'm tired of hearing myself in a loop. I don't know what I did. Um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about um, the differentiation between distributors, how to identify a distributor that is more in alignment with your um, approach to the market and location and identity. So, so my discussion with the Craft Beer Professionals Conference this time is going to be about how to shop for distributors and the differentiation between them. I think as our industry continues to grow, that's definitely an important conversation to have. Well, thanks, Laura. And Aaron, we get to see each other three weeks in a row. I apologize, but I'm looking forward to it at the exact same time. But, you know, what are you going to be talking about at the upcoming conference? And there's a new name next to you, a company name next to you today. Tell me a little bit about that as well. 
Yeah, so uh, that apology was definitely on behalf of everybody in the group, I'm sure. Uh, not not for me. <laughs> so Aaron Gore, Senior Director of Business Development for Bavana, formerly Community Brewing Ventures. I'm also co-founder of Court Shoes Only Charity Craft Beer Initiative. Uh, Bavana, what we do is we help uh, connect small beverage makers from across the world, as close as right down the street from my house, as far away right now as the United Arab Emirates. Uh, also in conversations with one in Tibet, so keep an eye for that. Um, really just help them access a market that, you know, it can really be difficult to break into, whether it's due to regulation, capacity concerns, uh, you know, capital concerns, or even just being able to scale and grow distribution. Uh, small small beverage companies have to wear a lot of hats, and sometimes sales and distro isn't necessarily the one that they, are they, they have the expertise in. Uh, in addition to that, I'm going to be speaking about uh, data analysis for dummies led by a dummy um, taught by me. So effectively, we're going to be taking a look at, you know, basic uh, data analysis, taking a look at both your own data as well as sourcing data from outside and being able to make that actionable and helping to make informed decisions, not just ones that feel right. It is the perfect title for you to speak on. I absolutely love it. When it came through my inbox, I'm like, yes, this is very typical, Aaron, and I can't wait to learn. So thanks again. Very typical Aaron's usually the first uh, first place I lose people. So that's, that's, a, that's a good step forward. <laughs> well, Warren, great to see you. Thanks for waking up early. You're in a slightly different time zone than myself. And you are also on mute. There we go. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I was, uh, I, yes, I am. I'm not, a, hey, I'm not waking up early. I got a newborn. I'm always up now. Uh, yeah, I'm actually, for once, I'm sitting. Yeah, was yeah. I got no, not a lot, but I got a little bit. Uh, you know, for once, I'm actually in, in a brewery. Uh, I'm at a, a new brewery here in Nashville called Fit in the Forest, and um, I have a meeting after this, but I don't have a beer because you keep doing this to me in the morning. Uh, <laughs> but it's all good. I'm I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, if anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Warren Bondi with Beer Marketeers, um, and uh, I, you know, we we're full service agency, uh, marketing, web development, graphic design, uh, kind of that, that whole spectrum of things. Uh, all of us come from uh, the beer industry in some way, shape or form. Uh, so I also came from distribution uh, as well. Um, so I did the distro side, worked for a beer distributor, worked for a beer, wine and liquor distributor. And then um, finally decided to uh, pull the trigger and take this marketing business I had on the side and go full time in it. And, uh, and my wife said it was okay. So uh, my real boss said it was good. And now we're here. We're here uh, seven it's years later. And we're, we're approval, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. So, you know, we're, uh, that's what we're doing. And then I'm excited to be speaking here and at the, uh, and up there in June too, in St. Louis. Yeah, we'll see St. Louis. And, but at this conference, you're going to be talking about adding structure to your marketing. Why is that important, yes. right? Yeah. So, you know, look, we see a lot of breweries uh, from so many different sizes, right? From the smaller size to the bigger size. And one of the most common denominators when people either approach us or when we're just talking to somebody where you have a tapper manager even talking about them doing their own social media or their own marketing is, is what I see from the outside is the organizational structure of it, right? They're kind of just like shooting from the hip and there's nobody actually processing it and building out this plan. And so, that's one of the biggest things that I think we really push to people, even if that's not what they maybe hired us for. I'm always like, hey, are you, do you have an Asana? Do you have something where your social media schedule is on? Do you have something where your ad campaigns are getting built out in? Do you have a, a preview of the next quarter, at least, if not the full year of a rough preview, right? So 
that's kind of where the structural thing comes. And I know, Andrew, you're always, I feel like I'm always preaching that and all of it. So I'm, I'm, I like to, to try to go away from that because I do know other things, but it's so important, especially where you got a lot of breweries who don't want to pay somebody yet, especially as they're brand new. And I'm like, well, that's fine, but here's some cool things that you can do. Um, and that's, that's what I'm going to try to, to get with people on uh, at this conference is here's some fun stuff that you can do to help your organization so that you can have not half-assed marketing. Like my last one that I spoke at, right? You can, you can fully market your brand properly. No, Warren, I have to ask you, you know, for this presentation, and then I promise Emily will get to you, but Warren, can we expect slides or just your super high energy? Not first thing in the morning, this go round. Yeah, no, you, you know me, man. I don't really do slides. I, I might, I might have some stuff. Uh, I, I can maybe show some some, uh, some screenshots of some some of the the structures that we use, and uh, and and maybe uh, be able to send that. I think what I'll I'll probably do is if anybody wants, um, you know, a good template, uh, they can email us or email me or say me or something in in the chat when we're live, and I'll send it to them afterwards. Uh, I would much rather have the beer and talk to people and answer questions and. And be there, especially now that I can have a beer on one of your morning conferences. Or thirty Eastern time, the latest I've let you speak. Lucky you. I know. Usually, you just made me look like an alcoholic at nine <laughs> o'clock in the morning, which is fine. That's that's okay. Uh, I almost was gonna I was gonna ask these guys for a beer, but I didn't want them to judge me either. We're brand new friends here. <laughs> <laughs> well, appreciate you waking up today with us, Orrin. Now, Emily, always yeah. excited to have a conversation with you. We bumped into each other quite a few times over the past year. But for everyone who hasn't had that opportunity, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, my name is Emily Wong, and I am the founder and owner of uh, Firmly Labs here based in Denver, Colorado. I am a certified brewing chemist, and I help people kind of dial in their quality processes in a proactive way. And when they're having issues, I'm there for their reactive, uh, taking opportunities to try and fix what may have happened. And so there's quite a few different things that I do. Um, ABV, bacteria, yeast. I'm kind of all over the place uh, with uh, trying to help people figure out what's going on, including off flavors and stuff like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm super excited to be talking about enzymes because it was actually a drunken conversation by one of my friends. Uh, who was just like, I don't understand why people aren't using enzymes more, that this would make everything so much easier when it comes to dealing with malt that's not lining up with what you're expecting. And especially considering how the last couple of grow years have been, malt is a lot more expensive and it's going to continue to be the economics of it has changed a lot. Not saying that there isn't a war going on that also is going to be impacting it, but we really do need to figure out how can we get the best beer from that. And um, I've known quite a few, I've known Andrew, I've known Aaron for a while. And I'd say that Laura actually gave me my first official speaking of experience. And I'd have to say it's one of the most interesting things to have your first speaking experience at 8.30 a.m. to be talking about uh, dissolved oxygen. <laughs> so it was, uh, I, I'm a little bit better, capable, more capable of handling myself now than I did way back then. <laughs> My well, first experience was in that exact same place, and I'm a whole lot better now, too. <laughs> it just takes practice and confidence. It but, does. you know, it's funny because so many of you have met each other prior to that. It's such a oddly small-knit community. I bumped into many of you in person, but also a ton virtually. 
Is the craft beer industry still that tight knit? And what's the secret to keeping it like that as we continue to grow? I would say it's definitely still pretty tight knit, even watching the industry expand the way that it has. Uh, one of the things I've always thought was so beautiful about this industry is the fact that if we have absolutely nothing else in common, we have beer in common. Uh, one of the kind of the anecdotes I throw out all the time. I don't know. Um, Emily, you're in Colorado, correct? Yes. Is every, who who is it? Everybody in Colorado? Let me in this entire world. That's the Warren's <laughs> not in Colorado. All right, good, good. I feel a lot better then. Uh, so uh, Ursula Brewery up in uh, Aurora. You know, it, it, we went to go see my folks outside of Colorado Springs. We we're heading back home. Stopped in Aurora because we got to the Denver area a little early. Just picked a brewery out of the, the Google machine. Stopped on in, and you know, before we knew it, you know, just hanging out at the bar, we're talking over and having drinks with Ursula or uh, with Evie, um, who works bar. I had beers with Evie when I was out in Denver as well, and, and, she, and she's the best. And you know, we we had never met each other in our life, had no common background, weren't even Facebook friends. It was just one of those occasions where if we had nothing else but a common starting point, we had beer, and you know, to this day, Evie and I stay in pretty close contact and become good friends. Uh, it's one of the things I love about this industry is, is, you know, I got a place to crash almost literally anywhere in the world. And I, I haven't seen that change. I've seen that actually become additive because even if there's more people and you can't necessarily know everybody in the industry the way you used to, you still have a common language. I, no, that's have, beautiful. A, I have a really quick one about, uh, so uh, there's no brewing up here in Netherlands. And uh, they kind of mo are modeled after kind of Hill Farmstead, The Alchemist. Great, love the love the two Chris's up there. Uh, but a funny thing happened was I went back to my hometown in Falmouth, Massachusetts, which is on Cape Cod, and it turns out one of the brewers that opened a brewery in my hometown, his dad lives out here and comes out and goes to Nod Root all the time. So Danny, and so my partner Danny was out there picking up beers for Collaboration Fest, and they were wearing aquatic brewing hats that were brought to them because one of them because one of them brews on Cape Cod and brought it out for his dad. And it was just like, of all things, just that weird little connections that just kind of make this such an interesting industry because you never know how you actually do know someone. Emily, are these just weird coincidences or are they actual proving how small our industry really is? <laughs> I, I think that was... I would say that's one of the weirder uh, coincidences that I've had. And um, it, yeah, it's just, it's crazy sometimes where you go out and people know you and they, it's because they've heard of your brewery or anything like that, or they've heard about something that you've done for a friend. It's such a wonderful thing because I've actually gone to like other states and people have come up to me and they're like, hey, aren't you Emily from Fermi? I'm like, well, Emily, you're not at all famous, right? I mean, I'm not I, that I, famous. I do post a lot. <laughs> I'm not that famous, but I, but to add to everyone, I mean, you know, one of the big things I think we we talk to when we, we say when we're talking to a potential client all the time is is that you know we wanted to be in this industry uh, in the beer and wine and liquor industries um, because of the people, right? Uh, I could go and make more money as a marketing company in the tech industry or in some other industries that would easily pay us as an agency. But uh, we love the fact that I could potentially call somebody in just about anywhere and have a beer with them. And that's awesome to me. 
And I think the way that we keep it that way is, is just making sure we're always kind of weeding out the shitty people, right? Like if they're not a good person, then, you know, chances are they won't last. Uh, we might not have to do it much. They won't last if they're not good person. Um, most, and it, most, I mean, but basically most of the people that stick in this industry are people that you want to have a beer with. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that's, what's, that's, what's amazing about it. So uh, that's, that's, that was my piece on it. That's what I would say. I think when it's gotten so much bigger, I mean, before the explosion of things, um, it used to be that you could go to CBC and you could see everybody because there were only a couple thousand breweries. And after the world has exploded, I think we have to work harder at it now. Um, and I think that's one of the nice things that that Start a Brewery has made possible is is to have a plan um, to, to meet up when you get there, whether it's CBC or GABF or various conferences. And I, I think it's it's harder now to just run into each other. We have to be more mindful about making it happen. Um, mm. But we're still, it's still a really awesome, cool, connective, sharing, uplifting um, industry, even though we've had those interruptions. Like there was kind of this weirdness when AB started buying breweries. Um, there's just been some, you know, all of a sudden after 2008, craft beer was a great investment, right? The whole ballast point thing. And it, every so often we have this blip where we get a little bit away from living your dream, but we always seem to migrate back there. Now going to, you know, your career in the industry, Laura, looking at the festival you've launched, how many years would it have been right now? And will it have been when we celebrate next together? Well, it was the same year that we were on. So our last festival was 2020 and we, that was our 20th anniversary. Uh, but our 21st anniversary might, I hope, be in 2023. So we'll be becoming legal. And so we're going to really lean on where craft beer has fuzzy boundaries between wine and liquor. And looking at the experiences of your own events, how has it changed over the past two decades? Are there any overarching you know, trends you've seen or changes you've noticed based off the, the interactions you've had? Oh, a bunch. Um, I think that just in general, from the very highest level, it's been really interesting see, to see the trend in styles. Um, at the very beginning, the reason for, for big beers was the lack of knowledge and awareness of the, of the bigger beers and the Belgian styles, basically international and, and higher alcohol. And I think that we've seen a trend towards how high can you go, right? That was the Dogfish Head, Sam Adams, um, battle out of, of, of how much alcohol. And then we had a couple of people that were weighing in, in in Europe that were kind of blowing that out with their techniques. But um, then we had a trend going back the other direction. We've had trends to go more Belgian. We've had trends to go, you know, more IPA, um, more sour. Sour was the, the latest and then the Saison world. So it's really been interesting to see where we've gone as an industry in terms of what people are looking to do. Um, there have been some styles that I thought would last longer, like a Brute IPA, and some that I've been really impressed at how how much it's been welcomed and embraced, like like the, the crazy wild yeasts that were in Belgium that nobody would ever use over here because they were going to contaminate all of their brewing system and blah, blah, blah. And here we are doing that all the time now. I remember telling Adam Avery he should do a sour as, as the next next year's feature beer. And he's like, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't ever do that. <laughs> so where are we now? So never oh, say never. Uh, right? 
Yeah. Uh, so for Collab Fest, which is, um, I'm sure not all of you know what that is, but it's basically when breweries basically get together and they all brew one-offs and it can be the dream beer that you've always wanted to do, something that might not be a big seller, or it could be, I want to really get some knowledge from this individual. And it's a wonderful event. And for some reason, there are so many cold IPAs. And Emily, where is this going to take place at? Is it in Colorado? Yep, this is going to be in Colorado. It started by the Colorado Brewers Guild. It used to be you could do one in-state collab and one out-of-state, but obviously things kind of changed due to uh, COVID and the fact that not everybody can travel or feels comfortable doing so at this time, um, even though we've seen things improve. But it's a great way to see people have some really fun. Uh, we've seen people put butter in beer, which I mean, why? Uh, rock climbing chalk. Um, I, I put a duck in a beer. It, call, it was called What the Duck. Um, <laughs> uh, in search of. Aaron's day right there, I'm sure. I need that. Yeah, it was, a, it was actually a, a goza. And a lot of people came up to us and they were like, what's, what's this goose? Goes. What is this? How the it's hell like, did you not name it Duck, Duck, Goose? I've seen you know that before. What? Uh, yeah. and, that. Then, and we did another one, um, another version of it, and we called it Seduction. <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where you end you, up you having... You just denied that label, by the way. That's... I know, I know. <laughs> um, don't, don't Google search Rubber Ducky seduction it's it still has some interesting uh google results um <laughs> but uh yeah it's a really great event because you get to see people have these kinds of experimentation but also what is coming up what are the things that brewers are really curious about brewing and cold ipas is very different from an ipl so learning more about this style and how a style is kind of evolving and the how comments are going to turn into nothing but people arguing that point, by the way, now. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is that I I, uh, I have a client, uh, uh, Andrew, Third Space in, in Wisconsin. Um, and uh, they are doing a collab here with another brewery, Lionsdale, out there. And it's called Cool Kids. And the write-up on the side cracked me up. It's like, you know, IPL, um, cold IPA, West Coast Pilsner, whatever the cool kids are calling it these days. And, and then they labeled it as a West Coast Pilsner. And so it says whatever the cool kids are calling it these days. And I was like, that's fantastic because it just shows, you know, how the, the beers can be a style that's kind of loosely defined as a few different things maybe, but it also could be this, I mean, maybe West Coast Pilsner sells better than IPL, right? Or sells better than cold IPA because who knows, right? So, you know, it might turn more people on to, especially now we're talking about trends. Like to me, I see a lot of breweries going back to making more lagers and making more, uh, you know, Belgian styles even. Uh, and I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I, my, one of my clients here in Nashville is, is Barrique Brewing, which is predominantly uh, barrel-aged sours and lagers, but I still see it across the world. Everybody's kind of like back into it and trends are saying that. So I think that's kind of interesting where the palates have changed, right? So everybody was, high, you know, everybody got so much, IPA and West Coast and hazy IPA in them. Some of those guys that I know, some of those people that I know are starting to trend back to like, they still like those, but they're like, man, I just want a good crispy lager. You know, these, I've drank too many hazies, you know, the other day. And now I just want this refreshing beer. I'm like, interesting. 
Okay, starting to sound like industry people. And we're definitely seeing a lot of experimentation in the craft beer industry right now. I mean, everything from obviously Emily putting ducks in beer to going back <laughs> on trends that are just driving themselves back. But looking at your all experiences right now, is there anything that's surprising you? Whether it's oh. some weird, unique style or just some general industry trend that you didn't see coming. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest ones that that I have seen has been kind of a uh, flattening of the long tail. I, I won't turn this into you know full full business dive in, but you 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 know Andrew how deep I tend to play in that field. And one of the things that we've definitely seen is a lot of the breweries that had a, an enormous amount. I don't like using the word hype because at this point in the industry, it almost has its own meaning independent of anything else. But a lot of the breweries that really were showing promise to expand and grow and had a ton of interest behind them. Uh, we're able to do so. And then due to a combination of factors over the last couple of years, I, I've seen in some cases 40 to 60 percent declines in distribution. Um, what we are seeing is a lot of the smaller companies, smaller breweries, um, they're not able to play in a larger space, but they've been remarkably stable in those same spaces. So with uh, the pandemic came, everybody moving into package. With everybody moving into package came, everybody moving into distribution. And with everybody moving into distribution, it really kind of flattened that long tail and made it so that uh, very few breweries are able to stick their neck up above, you know, the flowers, so to speak. Uh, but by the same token, it, it's also presented an opportunity for some incremental growth, even for really small players that otherwise wouldn't have any opportunity to play at all. And Aaron, this surprised you? Uh, it didn't surprise me. I, I, I might have helped build a business model uh, that, that saw this coming about two years ago. Uh, but it's definitely been a pretty fundamental shift in the industry. And it's one that I know has especially taken a lot of wholesalers off guard. Um, I've spoken with Lester, some folks at the MBWA, uh, as well as, you know, I work with wholesalers all over the country as is. And one of the big things that we've been seeing there has just been a uh, profound sense of, of worry that they aren't able to pick winners anymore because it's so much more difficult to just say, hey, this brewery is going to be expanding like crazy, has a ton of energy and hype around it. They're definitely going to succeed for us. Now it's a lot more about building a diverse, well-managed portfolio, and it's less about picking winners, and it's more about being able to have something to suit each and every one of your you know, potential consumers, whether you're talking about the end user, the actual customer, or you're talking about the, uh, the retail um, customers themselves. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Aaron. So I think another interesting trend in that, Aaron, and in terms of maybe even surprising some distributors is what, from what I've seen is the... Uh, side of breweries going to the model of instead of growing with distribution, growing with the second tap room and growing with the third tap room or, you know, growing that way. With or if you're high wire brewing, growing with eight tap rooms. Yeah. Or if you're high wire, growing with eight tap rooms. Or if you're a creature conference, going with a tap room in across the country. Right. Uh, so, so it's. Or it's out of range out in the French Alps. Emily, you beat me too. Yeah. 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 Holy. Oh, man. I've already it's offered it's my services to go out there and do some, you know, on site research. <laughs> What's well, a really cool model, I think, because what I've seen, what I'm seeing is I even see distribution breweries like Creature who, who are thinking about doing things like that in the future, right? And, and, you know, even Southern Grist here in Nashville, right? They have multiple locations now. And I'm sure knowing those guys, they would be cool with adding a couple more outside of Nashville as, as the city grows, maybe down in Chattanooga or whatever. And you saw Cherry Street come over from Georgia to Chattanooga. You got a lot of breweries coming over here to Nashville. That but are Warren, is this surprising you? 
No, I don't know if it's a uh, surprising. I know that was your question we asked, and me and Aaron both failed it. <laughs> I gotta keep you and Aaron on track. I know, but I thought it maybe it was surprising distributors more. Fair uh, enough. Because, and, and even surprising some people in terms of a bigger brewery wanting to do that, who already has. I mean, Preacher's got amazing distribution. Uh, you know, so they're doing it because they see the trend as well. And they're saying, okay, well, we can still distribute and put our product into the world, but let's also do this because we're going to be able to have a better presence in these markets that they, they deem key markets potentially. And they're still going to distribute, you know, they're not going to self-distribute in those markets. Now, Emily, obviously nothing surprises you because you help put ducks in beers. But <laughs> hypothetically speaking, if something were to surprise you, what would it be? Um, actually, I've been really surprised by how many breweries are taking seriously the fact that there is a non-alcoholic movement. Um, because more and more breweries are not just saying they're in kombucha or maybe soda or anything like that. They are actually going, hey, how can I get a non-alcoholic beer? How can we make non-alcoholic beer? Is that a worthwhile thing for us to invest in? Um, and if we do, what do we do about it? And what does that mean to us? Um, and so many breweries are finally looking at it and going, looking at it almost like, ooh, yes. Um, and a lot of breweries are looking at it kind of like having a gluten-free beer on tap. Out here we have Holla Daily, and they have almost they have a beer in they have a beer in almost every single tap room. To accommodate that gluten-free consumer and now people are going well how can i accommodate the non-alcoholic because if the non-alcoholic person is happy and feels like they're part of the group that's brilliant, then everyone's going to be happier it's kind of it's a very different perspective because people would come up to me when i wouldn't be drinking and that's an elective decision for my health sometimes i just need to take a break and they'd be like well why aren't you drinking are you pregnant? And it's like, no, I can make the choice not to drink. Um, my uterus is occupancy status is your business. Um, but having that opportunity to sit there and be like, you know what? Today, I'd rather go with a Syria or a strapless or athletic or any or Tommy Knocker, which has some really interesting stuff that they're working on with another uh, group about actually removing the alcohol from the beer and then reinfusing it at a different level over time. So you can have a beer that maybe is super low ABV or super high ABV and or no ABV. And that's a great option. And when that person that is feeling singled out and alone is happy, then everyone else is going to be drinking more. And that ends up hitting your bottom line because you're going to be selling more beers because people are happy and they feel seen. I love it. I think something that will surprise people. Oh, sorry, man. I, I think something that might surprise people soon in that trend, Emily, is how fast the shift could happen to THC infused beverages. That's already started. Um, oh, Syria I know. Brewing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what I find interesting is Syria Brewing was originally started focused on THC and CBD infusion. And somebody was like, well, I would just drink the non-alcoholic. And yeah. it's like, it just exploded. And I actually have THC CBD beers in my fridge because I can't smoke, but I can definitely ingest in other ways. And yeah. that's an amazing thing that is an advantage, but it's a lot more work because you can't do both in the same facility. 
Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also, we have to consider that it's still federally not proven. Yeah, but well, it's interesting. It's really interesting because, like, I mean, you know, big brands are already involved. Constellation, Paps. I mean, a lot of these companies already have brands in places like Canada that are doing this. Uh, and it's, I just find it, I find that very interesting because it's the trend, right? It's the uh, seltzers, a little healthier drinking. Then it was non-alcoholics, a little, a little healthier, we're getting healthier. Or low ABV. Then we're getting non-alcoholics. Then but what's then the next trend? Going hard. Like we have yeah, that's true. Now. And yeah, Mountain so, Dew too. Yeah. <laughs> Hard Mountain Dew. One uh, thing, you know, as a consumer, about <laughs> three or four years ago, I had to go to a doctor for just a routine visit. They're like, oh, by the way, you need to take this pill for like three weeks. And they're like, oh, and by the way, you can't drink alcohol while you're on it. Just some silly little thing you didn't expect coming. So you dive into the non-alcoholic segment and it's been impressive from a consumer perspective to see how the quality has improved over the past few years. And, you know, I just cracked a Black Butte by Deschutes and putting it side by side, the alcoholic version, they nailed it. You know, another company doing this, Guinness, they just put out in a Guinness and it, you know, it has that little fun nitro widget in it as well. It has the beautiful pour with fantastic head and they recreate the favor flavor extremely well. So it's really fascinating to see the growth and the quality of this side of things. And I know Emily and Warren, you both mentioned, you know, THC and beers. We're actually going to be partnering with the Cannabis Beverage Association for the end of May to have intro to cannabis and cannabis beverages, because this is something people are interested in. You know, the more knowledge we can have, the more fun it's going to be as a consumer, but as industry professionals helping create these products. Yeah, and uh, Keith Via already, because I mean, he's a founder of Feria, but he was also the person that started Blue Moon. Brainwave is uh, basically a non-alcoholic version of Blue Moon. Toss an orange on that, you basically have a Blue Moon right there. And the fact that there's a TH, there's a CBD version of it too, it's like, oh, you can have all the fun. You want alcohol, you don't want alcohol, or you just want to chill. It's like you got all the options. <laughs> Well, it'll be interesting to see, too, as not only have we seen non-alcoholic versions start to really gain some traction, especially some social cachet, because, you know, it's still a tiny segment and it's been growing fast, but it's a lot smaller than sometimes it, it seems just on the face of it from the reports. But it's become far more acceptable socially to be able to do something like drink an NA without anybody blinking. And the options have definitely gotten a lot higher quality. Uh, but even on the low segment, one of the things that we'd seen historically is people trying to take full strength uh, beer styles and really, uh, you know, downgrade the alcohol, half the alcohol. You get things like half-hearted, for example. I would love to start to see, and, you know, it hasn't really gotten that traction yet, but would love to start to see people start exploring more some of those historical styles that have always been lower in alcohol. Uh, things like, like England has a long history of sessionable beers that are not only delicious, but they're designed around being sessionable and low alcohol. And have that be an option so that, you know, uh, we're we're not looking at six and a half to seven percent as being the starting point for craft beer, which in so many cases, it, it's kind of treated that way. I was literally going to go there next, Aaron, because uh, Laura mentioned earlier about Belgian styles coming back and being being cooler. And I mean, I think this this low VVNA trend is also going to help some of these breweries who are doing that. You know, look. In the last few years, those Belgian breweries and some of those more traditional breweries, not all of them, but some of them have struggled, right? Because they're not the cool kids. They're not the hype boys that are just cranking out hazies and pastry sours and uh, pastry stouts and, and all this. They're trying to, they're, they are making something that they love. 
but I'm seeing it even here again with the, one of like one of our guys that like Barik who's focusing on it, where they have table, they have table saison, and and I'm like, it's so fun. This is a good beer, and it's it's 2.5 percent, and it's awesome to drink. Well, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about the you know the industry at large, and especially about small breweries and taproom focused breweries is, you know, uh, we we do a lot of distribution. Our entire business model is built around taking the things that are scalable from breweries and helping them get them out to a wider audience. But you also need to recognize that being small has advantages too. And one of the biggest advantages of being small is you can fuck around and find out. Like, like, like if you're taking a risk with, you know, like a couple of barrels that you're going to be putting through your tap room, like you can do something like a table saison and maybe it'll click and maybe it won't. The brewers will drink all of it regardless. Uh, but being able to really play around and innovate at that level, like that allows this industry to be so much more nimble than most other industries with large incumbents and not much else because that long tail those small breweries like they really can just throw their passionate and their interests into these things at relatively low risk and that's why the next hazy ipa that's not going to come out of a sierra nevada it's not going to come out of a firestone walker it's going to come out of you know, someone like, you know, Kim Sturdivan out in uh, San Francisco with Brewed IPA. That's going to come out of a place like the Alchemist with Hazy IPA. You know, you're going to get those people who are just wildly innovating and just seeing what happens and something's going to click. And Aaron, you're already always reading my mind. We're going to dive into innovation much deeper shortly. But I'd love to hear from Laura now. You know, what's surprising you about the current state of craft beer? Um, I think the, the biggest thing that has kind of shaken me up personally is is the whole... Um, e-commerce mission. And that came right on the heels of we're not going to really stick to the three-tier system and we're going to figure out this loophole that lets us have those tap rooms, even if we don't have a brewery in that location. Um, and I think it's really interesting to watch the, and the pandemic certainly helped because we're making exceptions to to well-established, long-lived policies and, and procedures and, and legal arguments. Um, so I think that it's really just surprising to me to see all the different ways you can use e-commerce. Uh, the little breweries now have options outside of getting formal distribution to, to be able to reach across state lines and, and get their, their beers in the hands of, of someone who really wants to, to try them. And I don't know, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many of those exceptions for the pandemic last, how many become normal. Are we going to buck the three-tier system on that many levels? Um, are the tap rooms without brewing opportunities? Certainly that's the best way for the smaller brewer because you get that margin. Um, you know, how, how much are we going to change the face of how our industry works right now? Awesome. Thank you, Laura. And this question is a little targeted at Aaron and Warren because you do such a great job of not answering my questions when I throw them your way. So on a scale of one to 10, now you have to give me a number as part of your answer. You know, how important is innovation right now for breweries what is a number <laughs> can you tell who's in sales and marketing good lord uh, <laughs> uh so in, in, in innovation i i think it, it matters differently depending on the scale that you're at uh i think the biggest thing isn't necessarily innovation it's differentiation and it's something i think that the industry is still figuring out because for a a lot of breweries, their biggest differentiator is literally the physical location of their tap room. And they don't really have a good answer if you say what makes you different from the other 35, 40, 70 breweries in town. Um, that's an important question to be able to answer. And most importantly, important question to be able to communicate to your customer. 
Um, innovation is part of that. I think you can be highly differentiated and truly unique and, and truly successful, even if all you serve is one freaking Pilsner. Um, you know, uh, uh, you, you see that all the time. Land of the clear blue skies. Hams is, you know, pretty, pretty differentiated. They got a clear message. They know what they're doing. Old style is so defined by being the Chicago staple and by being terrible. And they've leaned into that. Um, but, you know, innovation is one part of that differentiation uh, uh, component that makes any company successful, whether it's in beer or whether it's in, I, I don't know, uh, auto parts. You know, you, you have to be able to stand out against your competition with 9,000 breweries out there, plus competing categories. It's more important now than ever. So if you had to put a number to it, Aaron. 10, 10, 10. Andrew. <laughs> 11. <laughs> we'll take it to 11. Warren, are you writing the number on your hand so you don't forget? It, it was me writing writing the note down to give you a number because I didn't want to go crazy. Uh, I put like seven to eight. And the only reason there is because, you know, I, I think it's very important. I think that, like you said, Aaron, the, the especially the side on the taproom world, right? Like it's I see it all the time where breweries are, are come to us and they're talking. They're like, oh, these guys every weekend, they're, they're slammed. They're doing this. They're doing that. Well, Part of it is that they are, you know, a lot of these, especially these, some of these breweries these days are putting out four new beers a week, right? And it's constant. And not everybody can keep up with that. So the reason why I said seven or eight was because of that, right? Like, okay, it's understandable if you can't keep up, but there still needs to be a level of, of innovation. And even in the world where it's a brewery that's producing majority lagers or uh, there was a really cool brewery that I hit in Denver that I forgot, but they are all side poles. Uh, I can't remember. It was brand new. It was out in the middle of nowhere. Cohesion. Uh, what's that? Was it Cohesion? Yes. yes. Loved it. Loved it. But they still seem like the folks who are still innovating, right? They're still coming up with cool ways to make that traditional beer or a cool way to serve it. And that place to me was really cool because it is a traditional brewery, but they still had some fun stuff. So I think there's a balance, right? I think the, my answer would be an, an, a 10 if you can do it in moderation. It's important. But in moderation, also focus on the atmosphere of your company. Focus on your, your image because that's so important. I think it's hard to uh, hard for the distributors to handle crazy innovation. Um, so in terms of, of having a, a formal distribution partner, uh, that's a little crazy making. I think that the idea of like, Firestone Walker's Luponic Distortion and, and using the same UPC and just trading out the beers is one way to handle that with a, a traditional distribution relationship. But I think that that's challenging unless you have a pilot system and only offer it in your tap room. And we make beer is not a differentiator anymore, guys. Right. Yeah. Especially oh keep goodness. in mind, you know, one of the biggest things that we've seen is more places than ever serve craft beer. That's awesome. That makes a much wider market for us to be able to sell sell what we make. But you got to keep in mind, you're not just competing with the other breweries in town. And, and I feel like breweries, especially taproom centric ones, they forget this all the time. You're still competing with the bar down the street. Uh, you're still competing with restaurants. You're competing with grocery stores. And, you know, to Warren's point, uh, you know, you really need to be able to focus not just on innovation of product, but also innovation of experience. Because at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, they can get your beer in a lot of places. They can definitely get good craft beer in a lot of places. They come to your tap room for an experience uh, and, and to really feel that connection. So if you're not putting that focus on really standing out and making it so that start from finish, the moment they walk in the door to the moment they walk out, they're having a, a fantastic time and a really great experience. You're, you're not doing yourself a good service. 
Well, it's like with uh, Comrade Brewing out here. Uh, I was chatting with David Lynn um, because they self-distribute. And he was like, yeah, we uh, go places and they say that they just want superpower and that's the only beer that they want. And he's, he's like, at this point, I'm just like, screw it. You get whatever I have available and I'm going to give it to you and you're going to take it. Because <laughs> he's just like, listen, I know that we're really well known for this beer, but we are so much more than this beer. And when you go to their tap room and you get a flight, it's all yellow. It's all beautiful IPAs and it's a wonderful experience, but you don't get that when you go to a bar. And if you're just sitting there thinking, I'm just going to sell only superpower IPA, then you're also defeating some of that innovation. And since Comrade self-distributes, they can make the calls as they feel fit, which is great. Um, but it's like, though it's the general point of it is to get people to go to the tap room. That's why you distribute. You want people to get to the tap room. And when you go to the tap room, I mean, they have really great beers. Uh, Yellow Card, I think, is their like chili IPA that Marks decided that he absolutely had to have because he was lived on the West Coast and he made that there. And that, and he says the best breakfast is having half that and half like a lemonade rock star. Well, <laughs> it's like it, it's 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 very spicy and it's it's an experience and you only get that if you go there at the right time <laughs> and if they have that rock star, but it's like, it's such a weird kind of innovation and just how can we keep making great beers and they keep winning medals and some of them, and for some of them, they're for more interesting stuff that most people don't know about. Like more Dodge less Ram is named after the fact that somebody drove into their brew house with a Dodge Ram. Oh, that's awesome. I think I think something to say too is is to, and this is kind of to to some of the brewers out there who you know sometimes people can be stuck in their ways, right? They 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 look at it and they say this is the only way I'm doing this. This is what I'm making. No one's going to tell me different. Well, what I would say to that is to go and look at some of the most successful breweries throughout the country. Take a look at them and, and see how long they've been operating and watch. Even the older school folks are still doing things that are innovative, right? They're still at least trying different styles and doing different things that are making people say, man, I haven't had that yet. This is great. I'm excited. Uh, let me try this from them. And I think that's important. Right? I think that's so important in terms of keeping people enticed with the brand. Uh, so to me, it's like, hey, try your best to still be innovative while having a little bit of fun. And don't be so elitist and snobby about your product. Like just because you only like Crispy Boy doesn't mean that that's what only others like. And I promise you, it's not going to go well if you stick to your guns. Have a little fun. You can still stick to your guns in a way and, and go traditional styles, and but make great beer and have some fun with it. And stop, you know, don't be snobs about it either way. You can make great beer and be a home brewer. You start a craft brewery because you want to sell great beer. So you got to keep in mind that at the end of the day, you're not the only one drinking it. Yeah, for sure. Well, Emily and Laura, I'd love to hear where what number is on the scale for you on that one. Between 1 and 10, how important is innovation right now? To make um, do it. I, I'd, I'd rate it a little bit lower because I'm I'm also looking at that distribution balance. Um, I, I think the differentiation, to Aaron's point, is more important than the innovation. Um, but you don't want to be viewed as stagnant. So however you draw that 
balance, that that fine line. Um, innovation is important, but but I think marketability and, and innovation differentiation in terms of 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 being able to market your product is is right up there too. And Emily, your number? I, yeah, um, I, I think it really depends on <laughs> on what whether because out here we have a lot of kind of niche breweries that they only do sours or they only do IPAs or they only do lagers. So innovation for them is going to be a very different definition than just, hey, we need to we need to diversify our styles. You have places like Bierstadt and they're going to stick to something very German and very classic. And then you have some place like Weldworks and they're going to be coming out with something um, that's going to be basically competitive with like uh, Duclaw and their uh, like squatty potty beers. Um, I don't know, I can't remember. I think it's a pooping unicorn. Um, so I, I'd say like for the ones that are very niche, it's probably very low. It's probably maybe like a three or a four, but then you have these other breweries that are doing all the styles and their innovation is probably going to have to be at like an eight or a nine because they still need to try and figure out what that consumer wants today. And that is a constantly shifting target. If you're a niche brewery, people are coming to you and they're looking for something specific. If you're somebody else, then you're going to have to keep trying to find what they want. And sometimes it's going to be trial and error. And sometimes that's going to just be trial and error. You're not going to know what's going to be hitting right. And hey, you know what? We brewed a bunch of loggers coming into the summer because we anticipate this being a logger heavy summer. But for all we know, it might end up being like, oh, hey, you know what we all miss? Sours, like a lot of sours. We really want something fruit heavy and we want to know we want everything to taste like kiwi for some reason. I don't know. It could be anything. Well, and I, I think you you made an excellent point there, Emily, as well about uh, niche breweries. Like at the end of the day, specialization is a sign of maturation when it comes to a market. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons you get a place like Colorado, which is really able to get something like Hogshead Brewery that does nothing but English style and cask beer. Like that's incredible. Something like Beer Shot that really just drives home on. Uh, traditional loggers, side pull, slow pour, all, all that. Um, that's not a bad thing. And you can still innovate within that space. Something like introducing, you know, slow pour, that, that was hugely innovative, even if it wasn't throwing a whole fucking cheesecake into the mash tun. Um, <laughs> innovation takes many forms and you can innovate within your niche, but it's, it's a good sign when you reach the point as an industry where you can say to yourself, we are the sour brewery and that's fine. We're just going to do sours better than anyone else out there and really push the boundaries of what that means. We don't necessarily have to chase every trend. We can keep our focus tight, but more importantly, our messaging tight. And that's so true. Oh, right. Every brewery has a slightly different business model and goals, and it all depends on your individual business of you know how you can innovate in that space. You know, as we wind this down, I want to kind of transition to another talking point. You all are so generous to share your insight and crappy professionals. And I know individually, all of you love learning. I would love to hear something that you have learned this week. Just, you know, in all the conversations you have with your peers in the industry or even outside, what's something you've learned that you didn't know prior to, you know, seven days ago? And Warren, it could be even something your, your children taught you, something about yourself, something they brought into your life that you didn't realize. So 
I think this can go a lot of different angles, but I would love to hear, you know, something you all have learned recently. Give me a second. I don't know that one. That's a trick question. Well, it's a no trick question. I'm always learning. I'm always learning. So, uh, you know, there's always something to, to be learned. Uh, I don't know. Somebody else. Help. One of the things that just surfaced in Startup Brewery was the, the recognition that, and, and Andrew, you saw this happen. This is maybe stretching your seven days a little bit, but um, the idea that unions are focused on craft beer, uh, that was a little mind blowing for me. Um, and I think it's something that that both brewery employees and brewery owners need to learn more about. Um, so that's something that's kind of been a shocker for me, like, a, hey, we need to we need to pay attention on all levels. And there's something I learned actually just today. I had a conversation in preparation for a panel next week on what is fair compensation. And John Hyman, who you're referencing right now, who wrote the article or made the comment about unions and craft beer, he's going to be on that panel. But I learned just this morning that there's a statistic that 79% of people leave their job because they feel underappreciated. So it, it kind of ties hand in hand, but that statistic yeah. blew my mind, actually. So mm -hmm. learned it just this yeah. morning. Yeah, no, John's, John's a, a, a good treasury of, of factoids like that that are a little mind blowing. But it's nice to have a little bit of a an additional AR, uh, HR focus and a little bit more of an emphasis on uh, how we need to be learning to create culture and be accountable for that culture and hold that culture and uh, within within our own businesses. We're not we're not we're not not a business because we're a brewery. We're we still need to be tied to those normal traditional business practices of being good to our people and, and understanding what that means. Absolutely. So, interesting and something that has not been a focus for sure um, historically. I learned you can put a duck in beer. <laughs> awesome. No, I also, uh, this, this week, uh, over the last seven days, also managed to learn that the South Carolina Department of Revenue handed down a new interpretation that made uh, non-alcoholic uh, fermented products now governed as alcoholic products, which has thrown the entire kombucha and NA beer uh, categories into complete disarray. Uh, in particular, the in-state kombucha companies, because now they have to get their facilities laid out and inspected as actual breweries, which they weren't built from from the ground up. Uh, they have to get label approvals. They have to pass through wholesale since it's not a self-distro state. And any premises that we're used to serving, for example, kombucha, like a yoga studio that doesn't have an on-premise license, can no longer serve it. It's dumb. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's been a... a, a all sorts of fun, big headache, uh, considering I sell a crap ton of kombucha. So. What are you going to do about it, Aaron? Uh, so we're in a good position because we have an alcohol uh, permit. We have uh, alcohol wholesaler in state anyways that carries our product. All we have to do is basically get uh, South Carolina approval, which, of course, their website's not cooperating the last couple of days. I've got a help desk stick it out. The update on that just came through on the course of this panel. Uh, but for any smaller producers, in particular ones that are either independently operating, have no alcoholic component, they're going to have to go through the whole licensing process start to finish. And especially for in-state producers, for most of them, this is going to spell the end of business. Wow. So Brooke Bristow, who's in-state, heads up the South Carolina Guild. He's also a lawyer who represents most of the uh, crap beverage industry within the state. He's, he's on it. He's working hard on there. Hopefully, they'll be able to get this remedied because really this was a in typical bureaucratic fashion, overcorrection on some headaches a single wholesaler was having with athletic brewing that wound up leading to a whole, uh, a whole cluster that we're all having to have to figure out now. 
<laughs> I think I think this is all part of that, like that the regulators are pushing back on all of us that are breaking the rules and reshaping the rules and pushing the boundaries of things. Um, THC and CBD are an interesting plus alcohol are an interesting cocktail for the for the legislators. And I think that they're just reacting in all sorts of crazy, unnecessary ways. Yeah. In general, what I've found with government regulators in uh, as a whole is that when there is a gap in what the law clearly defines, they're going to make sure that they're the ones who have purview over it first. First reaction mm -hmm. is, okay, there's a loophole or, you know, the, the category is advanced. The lines are less clear cut now. The first thing we're going to do is say, you can't freaking do that. And then we'll spend the next mm -hmm. year or two trying to figure out actual uh, rules and systems around it. And, and to a degree, I understand that because, you know, if they don't step in right there, they're basically yielding their ability to regulate it at all, even in ways that do make sense. But it can lead to really just stupid back of the envelope interpretations, especially since so much of alcohol law is not built necessarily on legislation. It's built on interpretation by the enforcement bodies. And that's what we keep running into. Um, I could I keep saying one of these days I'm going to write a book about the effects of tax code and legal uh, requirements on the development of beer styles, because I don't think your average beer drinker has any idea how fundamental that's been to the development of the whole category. That would be fascinating, Aaron. I mean, we talked a lot about the importance of innovation, but there's a lot of challenges that come alongside it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, that some of the legislative pieces are done by somebody else's interpretation of what, what the craft beer industry does or doesn't do. In Colorado, they changed all the rules around events and nonprofits and the requirements of the you know special event permits being pulled by nonprofits because there was this uh, assumption that craft breweries were taking advantage of the nonprofits and making all this money and kicking the nonprofit back like a hundred bucks. And that's not the way the craft beer industry works. We'd go the opposite. We forget to take our hundred bucks, but they changed all the rules on that basis. So it's interesting their perception of what our reality is. Indeed. Now, Warren and Emily, I'd love to hear your take on this. Warren, sure. something you've uh, learned. So uh, I, you had me digging, man. Uh, I guess I learned that the that the little guy can sometimes win against the big guy with stone, right? Um, <clears throat> hey, that was a that was a, a learn. You know, you know, I I know a lot of people probably didn't uh, think that was going to be a win, especially since uh, Miller's got a lot more money. Um, so, hey, there you go. I learned that. There we go, Emily. How about you? Um, I do a lot of reading. So, what I've are you been, reading right now? Any recommendations? Uh, well, I have like six books that I'm reading right now, but the ones that are beer specific, um, I've been working through Beer and Racism and Alcohol and Humans. Oh, I'm not familiar with that one. Me either. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting one on socio-psychology and how the evolution of kind of alcohol for humans and why we still indulge in it and kind of the biochemistry of ethanol and how that became kind of part of our culture and why it matters. So uh, it's really, it's really fascinating reading about that. And um, it really, it actually ended up working very well for me uh, because one of our, we did a collaboration fest beer with our friends at Mirror Image, Wind Coop and Phantom Canyon. Um, and it was inspired because of a picture of my partner, Danny, has been hanging up in Wincoop since 2014. That was part of an installation that just never got taken down. Whoever was the curator, like they left, they moved on, whatever. They um, 
So that picture is still up there and it's just a picture of him, no brewing equipment. So we called it Forgotten Portrait. We did a malt liquor with Mandarin and Kumquat, came out to a 9.32%. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's it tastes like um, like vodka hate fucked in orange. Um, and, <laughs> and I ended up doing some research. And so the portrait is done in the style of tintype, which was very popular. <laughs> in 1965 to about nine from 1955 to about 19 from 1855 to 1867 and that was around the same time that drinking increased by almost 50 percent over a decade in america because of the large immigrant population and that was also when the rise of the temperance movement began so i ended up learning all about that and how that eventually and how tintype remained even though not very common anymore. It was still a novelty into the early 1900s and into basically prohibition, which is why we have so many different styles of photos that are kind of recall back to that. And so I ended up learning a lot about kind of, wow, this style of photo and the fact that we did a malt liquor, which is kind of what people call beer uh, in a lot of ways, was a really interesting, like, oh, all the lines are getting like crossed here. So I just went down a rabbit hole and it was largely because I've been reading these books about where, where is our history when, when it comes to alcohol and beer. And that's a great recommendation there, alcohol and humans. I love it, I'm gonna have to check it out. But you all are a wealth of knowledge. I know we could talk for hours on countless conversations, but I'm looking to hear from you all again next week at the Spring Virtual Conference. So Warren, Emily, Aaron, and Laura, thank you all for the time today. Once again, excited to learn from you all next week. Everybody can check out more information at spring2022.craftprofessionals.org to see the full schedule. And I'll see all of you in a week. Everybody, have a great thank day. Thank you all. Cheers. Thank you, Andrew. Bye, See you Laura. later. We are proud to keep CBP 100% free and accessible to all. If you enjoy conversations like this, please hit the subscribe button.